This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. For the UK, it's one of those values that helps to define us. The sort of value that we brandish on the world stage with just a hint of moral righteousness. We've seen a whole range of attacks on journalists from Belarus to Myanmar. Violations of media freedoms are growing around the world at what I feel is an alarming rate. And I welcome the unequivocal stance of the whole G7 on safeguarding those vital democratic bulwarks in our media freedoms. But being a journalist in this country does come with its share of risks. So one reputation manager told me recently, for certain types of clients, especially non-British high net worth people, their attitude is, why do I have to deal with these pricks in the media when I've got a guy who can smash them in court? <laughs> and now, the Home Office is proposing changes to the Official Secrets Act that would make the climate for journalists and their sources even more stifling. We keep telling the world journalism is the lifeblood of democracy. We cannot then silence journalism, silence sources and intimidate people. Long term, it's very, very damaging to the nature of the society we live in. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the law change that will treat journalists like spies. It's not often that a front-page story leads to a dawn raid by the police. But when it happened a few weeks ago, it wasn't the wrongdoing the story had revealed that was under investigation. It was the source of the story. For Sean O'Neill, chief reporter at The Times, whose investigations have included uncovering the scandal at Oxfam, the raid was a sign of an increasingly hostile environment for journalists. On Thursday, July the 15th, quite early in the morning, officers from the Office of the Information Commissioner, accompanied by two Scotland Yard officers, raided a couple of homes in the south of England. Some breaking news now, and two residential properties in the south of England have been searched after CCTV images of Matt Hancock were leaked last month. We weren't given any more details than that. But they were looking for the source of the Sun's exclusive story, revealing that Matt Hancock had been breaching his own social distancing rules by having an affair with his close aide, Gina Colodangelo. He says, I accept that I breached the social distancing guidance in these circumstances. I have let people down and I am very sorry. Now, that was the scandal, a huge story that led to the end of his 
career for now in government. Matt Hancock, uh, in the last few minutes, has resigned uh, as Health uh, and Social Care Secretary. There was certainly a sort of an air of the old kind of kiss and tell journalism about it. But this was definitely a public interest story. And it seemed extraordinary that should be followed up, not by perhaps a police investigation into the breach of the COVID regulations by the health secretary, but by an investigation into how the story came to come into the hands of a newspaper. And that that was carried out by the ICO, whose role is, and I quote, to uphold information rights in the public interest, promoting openness by public bodies and data privacy being the extra bit. The ICO or Information Commissioner's Office, is an independent watchdog. It's the body that protects UK citizens' right to information and to privacy. But police raids relating to journalism aren't usually part of its remit. As part of the ICO's investigation, the editor of The Sun, Victoria Newton, has been put under pressure to reveal the source of the story. She's been quite adamant that she's not going to do that, as no journalist should reveal their sources. And indeed, she said she will go to prison rather than disclose that. But I think as we look at this, she's on quite strong legal grounds here because this is an investigation under data protection laws. And data protection laws contain exemptions for journalism and for whistleblowing and for public interest matters. You've described the role of the Information Commissioner's Office in this, and their dual role is to protect data, but also to uphold public information, people, you know, the public's access to information. Given that there are exemptions in data protection laws for the purpose of journalism, they do seem to be sort of interpreting in a very odd way their remit in this case. Does, does that give you a sense of a political climate around that decision? I feel it's a very precarious time, a very difficult time to be a journalist because there are attacks coming from all sides. Although there's some fantastic investigative journalism going on, I'm also aware that there's a lot of investigative journalism that has been stymied and challenged where individuals are, are facing intimidation ranging from excessive and rather specious lawsuits very aggressively pursued in the courts to actually journalists being placed under surveillance. With that backdrop of investigative journalists already facing threats, intimidation and an increasingly challenging climate, the press was recently dealt another blow. The Home Secretary, Priti Patel, has proposed changes to update the Official Secrets Act. The Act was originally designed to prevent government employees from disclosing information that would be damaging. Both the leakers and any journalists who published the information could face up to two years in prison. But the law was seen as antiquated, and it didn't provide enough protection against leaks which helped foreign spies. So the Law Commission suggested several amendments. They included longer prison sentences and extending the Act to cover more types of information. But the Commission also suggested adding a new public interest clause which would protect people who leaked information for the greater good and the journalists who reported on it. But in the new proposals, the Home Office has ignored that exemption, whilst adopting all the measures which will increase the punishment for whistleblowers and journalists. It even goes as far as saying serious leaks should be treated in the same way as attempts at spying. 
It's a chilling set of proposals, which have been described as the greatest threat to public interest journalism in a generation. Pretty Patel's proposals basically broaden the way in which official secrets can be interpreted, because at the moment, if you pursue an Official Secrets Act prosecution, you have to be able to prove that real damage was done to the national interest. Under Pretty Patel's proposals, that damage test disappears and they introduce a subjective fault element, is, is what it's called in the consultation paper. And that just basically means that if a whistleblower leaks something and doesn't pay enough regard to the fact that it might do damage, then they can be prosecuted simply for leaking. And that's a great safeguard at the moment that disappears overnight. And just give us a sense of how that would change the media landscape now. If you look back at some stories in recent years, that could have a huge impact. I mean, let's take one of the biggest stories of this century, the, the MPs' expenses scandal. Many MPs returning from their long summer break on Monday will be wishing that they'd never been elected in the first place. Elliot Morley, a Labour MP and former minister, actually went as far as to claim £16,000 for a mortgage that did not exist, indeed that he had already paid off. Conservative MP Julian Lewis is reported to have claimed nearly £2,400 on kitchen appliances and over £4,800 on redecorating his house. It is all now, frankly, beyond a joke. MPs are panicking. The institution itself seems close to a nervous breakdown. We know the data on MPs' expenses was being hawked around news organisations for money, but no prosecution would ever took place, despite calls for one, because it was widely seen that those disclosures were in the public interest. You know, the public interest vastly outweighed any questions about the sort of ethics of it, because we were shown how MPs were basically wildly abusing public trust, public money, for duck houses, moats, uh, all sorts of scandalous things were going on and we were paying for it. And under the new legislation that, that the Home Secretary wants to bring in, she says whistleblowers would have adequate means to blow the whistle within Whitehall. They don't need to go to the press to raise these issues. But that scandal must have been well known. That's, that was a systemic uh, abuse of the ex expenses system within Parliament. I don't think any whistleblower had the courage to blow the whistle on that. You know, it wouldn't have been reformed within the system. It took somebody to go to a newspaper to blow the lid off that, to bring the sunlight in and, and actually sort of expose what was going on there. And I think, you know, if you look back, there are m many stories in a similar vein. You can imagine under this new legislation, what would happen to Alan Rusbridge, the former editor of The Guardian, for publishing the Edward Snowden revelations about Britain's role in widespread state surveillance. And Sean, if, as Pretty Patel sort of says, whistleblowers still have the ability to blow the whistle within their institutions, just not to go to the press. I mean, I think a lot of journalists will have read that and roll their eyes. I mean, explain, explain why. I think because journalists, and I think the public understand as well, that whistleblowers are just as much as journalists are part of the lifeblood of our democracy in terms of calling things out and, and enabling people to hold things to account. I mean, there are legions of, of stories of whistleblowers who are sacked, shunned, ostracized, forced to leave their jobs because they blow the whistle. And 
it's of course we know it's not just confined to Whitehall and to the public sector. We know that whistleblowers across industry, across the charity sector, in the churches, all of these institutions, all institutions, to my mind, seem to have a long and, and rather shameful record of silencing whistleblowers, not enabling them to speak out. Mm-hmm. And if they do speak out internally, it's quite rare, I think, that action is taken. So many, many people who come to the press will actually have exhausted every internal mechanism possible. They come to reporters because they want something to be done and the imperfect press, the, you know, the, the sort of inadequate model that we are, we are almost a kind of justice of last resort. This is the last place you go. It's not the first place you go. Well, Sean, before we go into more detail on Pretty Patel's proposals, I wanted to sort of look at... The, the backdrop for all this. I mean, can you paint a picture of what it's like at the moment to operate as an investigative journalist in this country? I mean, you've been leading the field for years. Has, has it changed? I think it's got much harder. If I can go back many years to, to when I started working as a reporter. So I've been a reporter for more than 30 years. And I don't think I've ever known a more threatening climate f- for journalism. I, I started on local newspapers in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. I remember being hauled in twice by... Royal Ulster Constabulary Special Branch of, over stories I'd written, wanting to know where I'd got the information, where I was at such and such a time on such and such a night. And I was warned at least once by the IRA about something I'd written. So I was in my early 20s at that point, And I remember that being quite intimidating and quite frightening. Mm. At the moment, I feel it's altogether more sinister and more sinister because it comes under the pretense of being a civilised type of behaviour. And what I mean by that is that we have very wealthy lawyers, big law firms, reputation managers. There's there's an industry built around basically trying to, to keep journalism under wraps, keep the truth mm. under wraps, keep secrets hidden. Yeah, we've both done investigations in the past where we've come up against that. I mean, I remember times when I'd get two or three really aggressive legal letters a day, every day. Or, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the surveillance and all sorts of other threats. Tell us a bit about what you've encountered when you've been carrying out big investigations. It's kind of slightly difficult to go into specifics. but (laughs) (laughs) Um, The reputation management industry is extraordinary, really. I, for a while, spent a lot of time writing about oligarchs, their wealth, where the money comes from, you know, and a lot of this was inspired by David Cameron's promise to clamp down on illicit money flows into the UK. I'm determined that the UK must not become a safe haven for corrupt money from around the world. We need to stop corrupt officials or organised criminals using anonymous shell companies to invest their ill-gotten gains in London property without being tracked down. So I started to look at this this area, but increasingly you would find you couldn't get to these people, you couldn't ask direct questions, you'd run into the reputation managers. And the reputation managers were often ex-journalists, but they're kind of turbocharged PR guys who represent very wealthy men, it's almost invariably men. But increasingly, I find that those reputation managers who were there to kind of massage and question and cajole and persuade, they're being replaced by law firms that have kind of adopted a a little bit of reputation management, but mostly dealing in threat. So you have legal threats, you find reporters being placed under surveillance, 
you find people just simply don't answer questions anymore. You ask a question, maybe give a, a prolonged period of time, you set a deadline, and what you get hit with at the last minute is a very lengthy legal letter making all kinds of threats and actually kind of defaming you as a reporter saying, if you publish this, you will be breaking the law, etc. So you'll be defaming my client and even before you've written a word or published a word, you know. I think a lot of reporters have found that quite difficult to handle. And they're very aggressive, very bullying letters. Incredibly aggressive and bullying and out of all proportion. I wrote a piece recently on, on reputation managers and one reputation manager told me recently, and this is a quote, for certain types of clients, especially non-British high net worth people, their attitude is, why do I have to deal with these pricks in the media when I've got a guy who can smash them in court? <laughs> so he's losing ground to the law firms and the law firms yeah. really from where I sit, don't seem to have any conscience about who they take on as a client. They'll do anything as long as they get well paid and they do get well paid. So, and this, this really, I, I could give you an example and this was the scandalous story really. I thought this was just a, a reasonable story. So I discovered a few years back that it's about 2016 that Arkady Rottenberg who is one of Vladimir Putin's closest friends, you know, he's his mm. judo sparring partner, but he's banned from entering Britain under the sanctions imposed after the legal annexation by Russia of the Crimea. He's made a lot of money out of that. But he was fighting a rather protracted divorce battle with his ex-wife, Natalia, in the court in London. And now you might think that's a private matter, that's not, not of any issue, but we thought it was of interest to the public and in the public interest that he was using the UK courts, that he was using UK law firms, even though he was sanctioned, and, and he's allowed to do that. This case was tying up the courts for months and years at huge expense. He was arguing that he couldn't pay his ex-wife any money uh, under the settlement because of the sanctions that existed preventing him moving money around, yet he could still pay his lawyers, of course. It was just uh, fascinating that he had um, vast wealth based in the UK, you know, one of Putin's biggest friends. So we argued that this was in the public interest and we should be able to write about this. The judiciary, four different judges, I think it was, gave him and his ex-wife anonymity orders. So we couldn't name him. We couldn't run the, the public interest argument. We fought this case for two years. And during those two years, his ex-wife was promoting her lavish London lifestyle all over Instagram and all over Twitter. So it's not as if she was living a private existence. No, exactly. But they'd obtained the most extraordinary privacy injunctions in the court, claiming that they were at a huge security risk without presenting any evidence whatsoever for this. It took two years. It went all the way to the Supreme Court before it was thrown out. And of course, it's pennies to him. The, the legal costs mm. are, are nothing to him. I mean, does it feel like... The legal system at the moment, you know, the courts, are they helping or hindering journalists and their ability to do their job? It depends what judge you get. <laughs> Some <laughs> judges are keen on open justice. Some judges really believe in it. Some judges really don't. You know, London has a reputation for the courts being fair and impartial for high quality legal services. The Ministry of Justice actively markets Britain's world beating legal services industry to the rest of the world. We earn a lot of money. It earns a lot of money for the country. But I think it's being widely abused. So what is it about the UK's legal system that draws people from abroad to the courts here? 
We'll have more in just a moment. But first, a message from the front line. I'm Anthony Lloyd, war correspondent for The Times. It's you who enables me to report from some of the most volatile environments in the world. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. Why are people drawn to the jurisdiction here? Do we have tougher libel laws than other countries? We have pretty tough libel laws and we don't have protections for a free press. You know, the US has a constitutional protection for freedom of speech and for the press. We don't have that. We have, you know, even Priti Patel in, in arguing for her new clampdown says she will pay due regard to Article 10 rights for the freedom of the press. Article 10 of the Human Rights Act 1998 states that everyone has the right to freedom of expression. This right shall include freedom to hold opinions and to receive and impart information and ideas without interference by public authority and regardless of frontiers. But it feels like lip service to me. Government statements about freedom of the press you know, they're poor out at the moment. So when Apple Daily is closed down in Hong Kong. Britain's Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab blasts China for using a national security law to stifle free speech in Hong Kong after the closure of pro-democracy newspaper Apple Daily. When there's repression of journalists in Belarus, the government speaks out about this. We all know the aftermath of August presidential election saw a shocking crackdown on independent media in Belarus. Over 400 journalists were detained, harassed, fined, subject to violence, intimidation. When the BBC reporter Nick Watt was chased across Parliament Square by anti-lockdown protesters not very long ago, (laughs) Boris Johnson was outraged. He tweeted about a free press being the, the lifeblood of our democracy, about the need for the press to be able to report things without fear or favor. Yet, we have the court system oppressing journalism, silencing journalists from all over the world, not just from the UK. And we have the government bringing forward legislation which effectively equates journalism with espionage, which says that an unauthorised leak to an actor working for a hostile power 
is pretty much the same thing as an unauthorized leak to a journalist. And that is quite chilling. And that will have a chilling effect on investigative journalism. In her 2020 book, Putin's People, author Catherine Belton wrote that Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich bought the Chelsea Football Club in 2003 on the orders of President Vladimir Putin to extend Russian influence abroad. Abramovich's lawyer told London's High Court that the book contained what he described as lazy inaccuracies, which gave the impression that he was Putin's cashier. And Sean, you were talking about how the court system is currently making life so much harder for journalists in this country. Right now, there is a case going through the courts in relation to the journalist and writer Catherine Belton. Tell us a bit about that. Catherine is the former FT correspondent in Moscow, and she is the author of a highly acclaimed book called Putin's People, which documents from a lot of human sources, a lot of very good sources, very, you know, people who were there at the time, the fall of the Soviet Union, the rise of, of Vladimir Putin as a power in St. Petersburg, and then his rise to power. And it, the thesis is basically that Putin's old intelligence agency, the KGB, retained power. It set up shadow companies across Europe, knowing that the Soviet Union was in peril. And it, it retained a huge grip on wealth and power. Now, her book, as I said, was published just over a year ago. It's a huge acclaim, but just within the sort of limitation period for libel actions, it was hit with four or five libel actions defamation, some of which name uh, Belton personally, which means her personal assets are at stake, her home, uh, her property, all that is at stake if she were to lose these libel actions. And they come from four billionaire oligarchs. One of those oligarchs is the Chelsea football club owner, Roman Abramovich. He's denied all allegations of corruption and the allegations in Catherine Belton's book about why he bought Chelsea men with very, very deep pockets indeed, and one from Rosnet, the Russian state-owned energy company. Some campaigners for freedom of expression would describe that as what's become known as a, a SLAPP, S-L-A-P-P, which is strategic litigation against public participation. That's the phrase that's been used to describe this kind of industry where lawyers will try to intimidate journalists into silence. One of the tactics is just to use their wealth to prolong and complicate legal actions so that that cases get, you know, drawn out and delayed. And even if they don't win, they win because they tie up an investigative journalist in a legal action for many years. And because it will have a deterrent effect, a chilling effect across other reporters, you know. We know that publishers are nervous about books like this. We know that some news organizations are rethinking their approach to investigations because the costs of doing so can be astronomical sometimes. So Catherine's case is really important. I mean, it's interesting with the case of, of Catherine Belton and others, there's actually a term for it now that you know foreign policy experts use called lawfare. Yeah. where it's sort of seen as people from other states know our system so well, they're effectively using it to undermine our own values. Do we need to work out what's more important, data protection or democracy? You know, are there bigger reforms that we need to be thinking about? Yeah, there are. I mean, and the difficulty of not having a written constitution is you can't implement, you can't 
building a, a constitutional protection for journalism, but you could have a public interest defence in the new Official Secrets Act. You could have cost limits in the libel course. We could, if we really believe that journalism is part of the lifeblood of our democracy, we could do a lot more to protect journalism. Given that, Sean, when you heard about Pretty Patel's proposals, what did you think? What did I think? I think they haven't thought this through. I think there's a conflict within government. I just don't think when they claim to value journalism in other parts of the world, it feels to me like it's lip service, that some of the best journalism in the world is done in this country. And and we really ought to be safeguarding it, not trying to clamp down on it. To equate journalism with spying, to equate journalism with espionage, which is what this legislation will do if it passes unchecked, is scandalous. If we are seeking to control journalism in that way, because you know the security industry, the securocrats are winning, then that's just really, really dangerous. But it adds what she is doing and what she wants to do adds to a climate where journalism is under attack already, you know. Um, what happens with her proposals next? I mean, what stage are they at and how soon might they become a part of legislation? Well, that's a bit of an open book, really, but the consultation closed. She will have to go away and the Home Office will have to consider the responses to that consultation. And, and I think the media will have put in some very robust responses. You know, this is something that's united everybody in the media from the Daily Mail to the Guardian and all points east and west. There is genuine outrage and genuine concern. So they will have to consider those responses. They will have to come forward, I guess, with legislation because the Official Secrets Act does need reform. It's quite outdated. But there is an opportunity. There are provisions recommended by the Law Commission by which you can build in protections for journalists and journalism and public interest journalism. And hopefully, before they bring forward a bill, they will implement those safeguards. And just to be clear, if this bill does go through, if the law is changed, how would it change your ability to do your job? I think the biggest single effect it would have would be on journalistic sources. I think the biggest intimidation will be uh, on whistleblowers and sources. I think people will be afraid to speak to the press and people will be afraid to speak out. And I think that's a, a that would be an absolutely damning thing. For, for if, if that was Pretty Patel's legacy in government, that would be just appalling. We have massive problems with with a loss of trust. And I think journalism is one of those things that, that actually you know, ensures that, that people still actually believe in, in the system. And, and we keep telling the world journalism is the lifeblood of democracy. We cannot then silence journalism, silence sources and intimidate people. It's just long term, it's very, very damaging to, to the nature of the society we live in, I think. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Times chief reporter, Sean O'Neill. You can read more of Sean's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producers today were Asia Fuchs and Edward Drummond. 
The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Gareth Isles. If you'd like to get in touch with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do drop us a line to stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>